the industry is moving into the public cloud space, which means that's just a level playing ground for everyone. So the only advantage that you will have is really a proprietary or AI type of application that can be connected to the ERP. Your client, they have to start creating a list of what are the right questions to ask to Gen AI to be competitive. Otherwise, if all the clients are using the standard ERP that's available in public cloud, you have no advantage. Welcome to the Future of ERP podcast. I'm Richard Howells. I'm the Vice President for Thought Leadership for SAP's ERP Finance and Supply Chain Solutions. Today, I'm going to be discussing the impact of AI and Gen AI on the quote-to-cash process. And to do so, I'm pleased to be joined by Richard Chan and Prithvi Nag from EY and David Griffin from SAP. Welcome to the podcast, gentlemen. If you could say a little about yourselves as a short introduction, and I'll start with Richard. Oh, thanks, Richard. Hi, everybody. Richard Chan. Previously with SAP, a number of years, two, more than two decades, that rejoined EY as part of their business development team. Really a focus around both the cash. Happy to be on the call. Thank you. Prithvi? Hi, everyone. So I go by Prithvi. I'm a part of EY's AI and data consulting practice based out of New York. Most of my work tends to be on AI and data strategy, running large digital transformation programs. Thank you. And last but not least, Griffin. Hi, David Griffin, but I go by Griffin. Normally, there's five people on a call. I, there's four Davids, so. But I go by Griffin. I'm a long-term uh, order cash. I've done it inside and outside of SAP. I happen to be inside SAP right now. When I first met Richard, I was outside SAP, and he was inside SAP, Richard Chan, that is. So um been a long time that, that he and I have worked together. Uh, talking about these topics, I was a consulting manager, and now I work inside what's called a finance center of excellence where I have a lot of conversations with C-level executives around the value of our order cash and, and now Gen AI. The topic of AI and more recently Gen AI have been top of mind in the press and business discussions for months now. But to set the, a baseline for this discussion, and I'll start with Prithvi, what is your definition of AI and Gen AI? And how has it evolved and why is now the time for AI? Sure. I like to frame this from the perspective of the people who are actually going to be consuming these capabilities. So even for the definition, I will speak to it from that lens. So at the most fundamental level, AI is the capability that allows machines to perform tasks that typically required human intelligence. That's the most fundamental definition. Now, within that, we've also heard so much about generative AI. And really, the key part which makes it generative is the ability to create new content which can be images, text, audio, video, based on what the model has been trained on. Now to the other point that was just asked is that, like, why now? What's changed? So just to set the context, artificial intelligence came into kind of the public sphere all the way back in like 1943. And then if we think about generative AI, that actually, I would say in 2017 is probably the date when we can trace its origin. So if 2017 is when Gen AI kind of originated in a way, why has there been an explosion? And I would say there are almost like three main reasons. The first is what I think of as the emergent abilities in large language models. So as an example, we've seen the progression between let's say a GPT 3.5 and a GPT 4. So as an example, GPT 3.5 scored in the 10th percentile in the uniform bar exam. GPT 4 scored in the 90th percentile 
there have been uh, examples of the LSAT where the performance went from the 40th percentile for GPT 3.5 all the way to the 88th percentile. And then there have been more recent releases from Google and Gemini and all of that. So the abilities continue to progress. So that's the first one. The second is the democratization of AI. Earlier, a lot of the AI capabilities were available within, let's say, the research of the academic community. And nowadays, literally anybody with an internet connection has access to that. And that has basically led to more use and more creative use of it, I would say. And finally, there's also been significant funding in AI, uh, which has also resulted in some of the progress that we've seen. So that's my high-level take on this. Okay, so... You've talked about the quality of the solutions becoming higher and, and the accuracy, but what are some areas where you see use cases for Gen AI in business systems? When we think of Gen AI and how to use it effectively in organizations, use cases are kind of an easy way to help people appreciate what we can do with it. And that's a good starting point. As a firm, another thing that we are also trying to discuss with our clients is that while it is good to experiment and get your feet wet with some of the use cases, there's also a need to think about this more holistically in terms of how you can drive value beyond the success that you might get with some initial use cases. But that's just something I wanted to frame. But then let's get into the specifics that you asked for, which is what are some of the examples? And I would think of it as, again, from an end user perspective, there are four buckets in which uh, we often like to think about this. The first is, Use cases that relate to information processing. That is, for the model or the machine to be able to understand instructions, questions, or prompts. So as an example, we think of data classification. You could feed a conversation. You could feed a meeting notes to the model and say, what was the tone of the meeting? Was it positive? You know, help judge that, things like that. So the ability to process information. Then each day, each capability is kind of success progressively builds on the previous one. So the next one I would think about the second bucket is information retrieval, right? So does the model or the machine have the ability to retrieve relevant information? So example of that is customer service chatbots. Are they able to access a corpus of information, extract only what's relevant and surface that to the person who's asking the question? So that's the second one, which is information retrieval. The third we think of as tool orchestration, coordination, execution. If you have to perform a task that requires you to access three different systems, can you just talk to the model or the machine? And it knows and it can coordinate between all the different systems and tasks that you earlier needed to. You can also think of as next best action as another good example of that. It's based on a certain set of inputs. Do you know what action needs to be taken and can you actually take that action? The fourth bucket is close to the generative piece, which is generating new content. So the ability of the machine to author new content. So as an example, you could think of drafting a contract. So based on a certain set of training and prior information, if you feed it a certain set of parameters, can it draft a contract for you? So generating net new content. So those are the four buckets in which we often think of the use cases. And then within that, of course, there are so many examples. I wanted to comment on some of the, the general AI capabilities before we get into the specifics of Cortecast. I think it's important for us to also not just talk about Gen AI and AI capabilities, but also some of the shortcomings that we have with it in the business cases. I think there's two that I can really think of that are challenges, and we have to keep those in mind as we move forward. The first is that we have, and I'm talking about more machine learning at this point, 
But as we use it in certain cases, like how we automatically tier payments for banks, for example, one of the challenges is its auditability. We oftentimes don't know how the machine made its decision to go do what it needs to do. And so oftentimes that becomes a trick that we have to go think about how we work through. And it kind of limits sometimes the use cases that we do, even for the machine learning in terms of what it can do from from an auditability perspective. Obviously, everything we do at ERP is about auditability. That's a little bit when you did math exams and that you had to show your work. You can't just put the answer. You've got to show how you came to that answer. That's exactly it. And that's right. It's not just oftentimes enough to come to an answer. It's important to how you got to the answer is just as important. Like you said, you got to show your work. I think that's the right way to put it. And then another real limitation, I think specifically to Gen AI, is that it lies. It's just outright, it's called hallucinations in the models. And it just outright lies. It'll make up stuff and quote stuff from it. So we oftentimes do have to be often careful how we use the tools because it's got to understand its limitations and it's not the end all to be all, and it's not going to be a holy grail. Just like every other technology, there's going to be trade-offs you're going to have to give. And so oftentimes the interesting thing is going to be living with those trade-offs and how do we combat those trade-offs. And one of them is, like I said, Gen AI outright will tell you a mistruth. You type in a chat GPT and it'll come back and it looks like a beautiful citation, but it might be completely made up. And so those are interesting things I think we need to deal with in terms of business case uses for AI and ML in general. You brought some really great points. Based on Griffin's comment around anomalies and whatnot, I feel two things. You want to develop AI where you could save money, that's efficiency, and then where you can make money. But sometimes um, the data that you're relying on may not be factual. Let's say, for example, you have an AI and, and it's really looking out in the social media about a specific product, like your competitor product or your own product. And it could be something that's not factual, that they're actually promoting a gadget or widget that is really not what it is. And then your AI is saying, hey, we want to promote this as our next sales target. But in reality, you're really doing a disservice because the data that it's pulling from is not reliable. So at some point, where do you find the correct data? And that's going to be really interesting because you could destroy other companies using AI based on non-factual content. For example, if the farm company had produced a new product, but the competitor had developed some type of fake news around that product, how can you prevent that? It's going to be too late. By the time you recover and say, hey, this is the real fact, it's already too late. You already lost market share and lost the brand associated with it. I think you bring up another interesting point too, is that who's responsible for AI, right? And if if you have an AI that's out doing something that ultimately companies are going to be responsible for it. They're the ones that are going to pay. So I think that's an interesting limiter too, is that they can't be autonomous. They're going to have to be controls and regulations. In fact, you just saw the EU start to pass a bunch of regulations around AI. Um, they're categorizing it, about threat level, et cetera. And I think we're going to see much, much more regulation around it too. And that's another interesting, probably limitation we're going to see in the next three years. Is it's going to be limited what you can do with it and how you do with it and, and how you audit it, et cetera. Um, as things become much more regulated. I think that's a great point. And so what we are seeing so much in the market is there's the initial interest, significant interest in generative AI. And then exactly the topics that we are covering is now how do I use it responsibly? And we're seeing a huge uptick in the questions from our clients on, hey, I get what is possible. How do I control for the risk? And I think the other point that Griffin mentioned is really important which is there is a somewhat broad understanding of the limitations of these technologies. What we have to be really careful is 
as we roll it out to a greater kind of user community, it's really important for folks to understand how, to what extent you can rely on it today and to what extent you need to do the trust but verify. Because what happens is you initially start getting great results and you may start over-relying on it without doing the trust but verify. And it's a journey. I think there's a fair degree of confidence that over time these problems will be solved. But it's more about while you're on the journey, what are the controls that need to be put in place to make sure we control the risk? I think we'll loop back to that whole concept about responsibility a bit later and, and trust in the results. Just for now, can we talk a little bit about the quote to cash process and some examples of where you think Gen AI will impact those? Maybe Richard or Griffin can take that one. We see four different buckets in the quote to cash process. You look at the operational efficiency. And you look at ongoing compliance, then you have to get some feedback from the customer based on their experience. And at some point, there's these three different buckets help with revenue growth. So if you look at operation efficiency, everyone is trying to really remove some of the human interaction to make sure that the entire quoting process is streamlined, that the billing and invoicing accuracy is there. So those things are really looked at. Is the mastery data clean? Are the quotes correct? Ongoing compliance would be something in similar to, have we constantly evaluate the risk of the client? Are we looking at the contract to make sure that there's no errors? Are we complying with some of the contracts? Are we sending out notifications to the client, give them advance notice that they are based on their contract, they are bound to purchase X and they're not reaching that, you know, those targets. If you look at customer experience, what are the feedback you're getting? Are you getting churned? Are you solving some of the questions that they are concerned about based on your products and services. What are you getting from email, text, social media, especially social media? And then in terms of revenue growth, are you personalizing? Are you looking at, you know, based on your customer product or service use and all? Where are the growth? Are you spending money on a product that is on a downward trend as opposed to an upward trend? So there's a lot of different areas that Jenny and I can do. I think that last one is the really interesting one where we can really grow revenue for companies based on use of generative AI. I think that's really a critical piece of it. It's a lot of what I do as a, what I do in my business is preaching about revenue growth and changing the color of your revenue into more recurring types. It's more worth more, et cetera. And we have these great solutions that gather all this data. That's one of our sort of strengths of our solutions in this area is we believe in operationalizing all this little transactional data. We have this rich set of activities and, and 360 degree views of everything a customer has done for our for their customer, our customers, their customers have done. And I think it's critical that a piece of that is a feedback loop. You create an offer at the top, you, you go through it, you cycle it, you deliver on it, and the customers use it, and you find out over time which ones they use less and which ones they use more. And oftentimes it'll take a human intervention to go analyze, hey, what worked, what didn't work, or what am I leaving on the table? Uh, we have a large customer um, we're going through the sales cycle with. They run one of the largest marketplaces on the planet. And at the moment, they only make money from the seller, not from the customer so much, from the actual purchasers. And so they're looking at generative AI to find the places that they're not picking up extra revenue from other places. Also, how to optimize offers if they can do A-B testing. And they can do it on large volumes in these huge marketplaces. You'd never be able to do that in real time with human beings. But with generative AI, you have the ability to do that at scale on some of the largest marketplaces in history 
with real-time customer data down at the low-level transaction. I think that's part of the critical interesting piece of it is just the volumes of data that you could cycle through and offer up new possible ways for companies to grow their revenue. I think that's a really exciting place in quotes of cash. You've started answering my next question already, Griffin, which is the benefits in the current uh, quote to cash process. So we've talked about a revenue and increasing revenue. Are there other examples where you can illustrate how Gen AI can benefit the current processes? We talked about machine learning and I'll talk a little bit about that too, because sometimes it's hard to separate the two out. We're already seeing use cases. We have years of experience with payment application, really. Oftentimes if something comes into to a company and it's hard to tell what they actually meant to pay, we have those use cases already in the bank right now to do it. It's machine learning, not generative AI. But I think it's really critical in terms of building the trust of our companies and customers that to know that machine learning actually works out there for what it does. But like I said, generating these new offers, that's a huge benefit of it. And really cycling through all this data at super high volumes and finding stuff that people aren't finding, whether that's opportunities for credit to extend or maybe they're leaving money from a collections and disputes on the table. Really looking at the, the large volumes of data that we generate in this world and looking at it with a critical way that you just can't do with people in real time. I think that's really the benefit of it is at a high level, being able to use a vast set of data, not the world's data, but your customer data, their okay. int intimate relationship that you have with them in ways that you just don't have the manpower to look at today any other way. To Griffin's point, if you look at some of the operational efficiency, Griffin pointed out credit, disputes, and billing. And if you look at the margins of business to be competitive, the margins are getting smaller and smaller. So the only way that you can make up the revenue is just by volume, which means that you have to remove a lot of these inefficiencies. Time is really a critical factor with the low margins and time. So when you have disputes, can you settle the disputes within hours instead of days or minutes instead of hours? When you look at customer credit, for example, do you have all the factual information? For example, the unbilled portion of the customer usage of credit, have you accounted for that? Have you looked at the sector? Have you looked at all the different elements around the client, not just so much the behavior or the interactions you have with them, but all the surrounding factors, the economy, are they impacted because of another country's they decide that, hey, we're going to put an embargo on, we're no longer buying goods and services from this sector. So a lot of those things have to be enacted on immediately as opposed to sitting back and trying to analyze, should we do this or should we take a different step? But it's really time and margins are, are just becoming so critical and, and we have less and less of it. So how can you close that gap? Yeah, I think you bring up an interesting point about scale, Richard. When I was at a customer a long time ago and I was like, I had to identify it was only like $400,000, $500,000 worth of revenue loss. It was because our systems weren't great. There were some errors in it, et cetera. And it sounds like a lot of money, $400,000 and $500,000. And I wrote this proposal to my then manager, product manager. Hey, if we do this and X, Y, we can recoup X amount of revenue loss. And he said, okay, how much time is it going to take us to do it? How many people? How much everything else? And I put the number to it and I said, more than the money we're going to save from that. And he was like, exactly. That's why we're not going to touch it. We just forgot about it. I was an engineer. I want everything to be perfect. I don't like loss. And so the interesting thing is that number is going to get smaller and smaller that we leave on the table. But it's not just expensive consultants like me at the time who built 300 bucks an hour, whatever my rate was when I was doing it. It's going to be a, a machine that can, can go do it at, in blisteringly fast at a low dollar value. And so we're going to, that scalability of stuff that, 
we can look at smaller and smaller and smaller transactions and yet they still have value enough to actually pay attention to them. I think that's an interesting part of generative AI is that it can actually focus us down and lower our scope of what we're going to look at and yet still be profitable. I think that's an interesting place. Prithvi, I'll come back to you. How should organizations think about Gen AI to be able to effectively leverage it for their business? This is what I was alluding to earlier is that we often start with the use cases, but then there is how do we make sure we structure our approach to really drive a lot of value. And the conversation that we've been having with our clients is the strategic thinking must flip. And what I mean by that is if we look at how a lot of work happens today, we have people executing process presented with data powered by technology. So what does all of that mean, right? So if we take an example, let's say a simple one everybody can relate to is the hiring process, right? And so we have a talent team that helps with hiring. So how does that work? So you've got people in the talent team that are executing an end-to-end kind of hiring process, all the way from creating a job description, posting it, getting applicants, all of that, right? So you've got people, the talent team, executing a certain hiring process. In order to do that, they're presented with data, right? So they have to access various systems to get applicants, things like that. And that is powered by technology. That's how we operate today. And what we are advising our clients is, from a strategic perspective, flip that to technology powered by data, executing processes managed by people. So if we take the same example, what that could be is that, hey, if between us, we decide, hey, there's this new role that we need. In theory, we should just be able to go and say that, hey, I need to hire, let's say, a data scientist with some parameters. And then the technology will have access to all the necessary data to execute the full end-to-end hiring process. And our role will be to manage the process. Like we may decide, hey, you know what? We want to do two in-person interviews versus in another situation, maybe one virtual interview, one in-person. So we're managing the process, but everything else is just executed end-to-end by technology. So that was a very simple example. But that flip, where it's less about people executing processes, right? More about technology powered by data, executing processes, and the people are managing. I think that is the strategic kind of thinking that we're driving. And then to take that a step further is very often when we think about AI and automation, there's often a question of impact to jobs, things like that. And the areas of opportunity are quite broad. So the way we like to frame this with our clients is you want to think about it typically if you take a two by two, you want to think about it from a PNL value lever perspective. So you are looking at both revenue growth opportunities as well as productivity. And very often what happens is people look only at productivity. So there's revenue growth opportunities and productivity. Also think about it from the lens of, are you making an improvement to your existing business model? Or is there a completely new business model that you can also embark upon? That helps you kind of uncover the full spectrum of opportunities that can be derived from AI, Gen AI, et cetera. We've touched on my next question a little bit right at the start of the session, but what are some of the risks and concerns that I should look for when I'm talking about Gen AI? It could lie to you in that it's got the wrong data or leveraging the wrong data to come up with a set of results that isn't helping your business or your business case. What other examples do we have? The first thing to keep in mind, I think Griffin also alluding to this before, there were some inherent risks with AI that were already there pre-Gen AI. Many of those still apply. And then there are additional risks 
that are now introduced as a result of us using Gen AI and large language models as the, the high level. If we think about the risk, we like to look at it in terms of four kind of buckets of risk. Yeah. There's one around confidence and accuracy, which is really the one that we touched on a lot about, is that the possibility of hallucinations. Are we over-reliant, become over-reliant on some of the information without doing due diligence? Are the outputs explainable and traceable or not? So that's one bucket around confidence and accuracy. The next one is around privacy, surveillance, and security, right? So there, we've heard cases in the news, right, where sensitive information has been released inadvertently, right, as a result of being fed to these models, things like that. There's also an aspect of cybersecurity, which is hugely important. These models also let you operate at scale. So you can think of it as an offensive capability that you can think of nation states using it to influence elections as an example, right? So there are all kinds of from a privacy, surveillance, and security. Then there's fairness and bias. So these models are trained on data, for the most part, generated by humans at the moment, at least. And so we humans have biases. The data we generate reflect the same biases. And that's what the models are getting trained on. So there are measures to control for that, but that still exists and that's another bucket of risk. And finally, there's legal and regulatory because the capabilities that are now emerging have kind of outpaced the legal and regulatory mechanisms that we have in place. Also, the legal and regulatory kind of needs vary significantly from geography to geography as well. So it's very difficult to come to one baseline which works everywhere. So, but high level, those are the four buckets. So confidence and accuracy is the first one. The second is privacy, surveillance, and security. Third, we would say fairness and bias. And the fourth is legal and regulatory. So we're coming to the end of the podcast, actually. It's flown by. And I always ask this final question to the guests. But if you had to summarize in a sentence or two, what do you see as the future of ERP? So with the caveat that who knows with predictions, right? But I'd like to think about this in terms of the three lenses. One is I anticipate ERPs will introduce more and more AI and automation at the core. So as an example, there could be like financial forecasting, conversational finance, things like that. So the core functionality of the ERP. The second is around consumption. So I can anticipate the use of generative AI to interact with ERPs using natural language, not having to understand no, all the navigation, all the functions, just being able to use conversational language. And the third is around the ability to create what are essentially bespoke applications. So more and many of our client conversations, we hear about these things that come up in discussion, which is leveraging no-code, low-code frameworks to orchestrate and cross different applications to almost create like a customized bespoke application, which gets you to an outcome faster at lower cost. There are trade-offs as well, but if I had to say in the future, I, I think these are three trends I'm keeping an eye on. Thank you. Richard? From my perspective, as the industry is moving into the public cloud space, which means that's just a level playing ground for everyone. So the only advantage that you will have is really a proprietary uh, or AI type of application that can be connected to the ERP your client, they have to start creating a list of what are the right questions to ask Gen AI to actually uh, be competitive. Otherwise, if all the clients are using the standard ERP that's available in public cloud, you have no advantage. So really the proprietary is what are the experience and the questions 
and uh, the development that you have on Gen AI that can attach to this ERP landscape. Griffin. I have a similar comment to Richard in terms of the transition from on-premise to the cloud. I think is a really interesting inflection point for uh, ERP specifically. If you think about it in the on-prem world, all these disparate data centers that run ERPs, there's a lot of interesting corporate operational data sitting in these ERP systems. But right now, it's all in these disparate, untouchable locations. When that all moves into a cloud, not mining of corporate data, then that's going to offer incredible insights to the way that we run companies, or at least has the opportunity to do it. Again, generative AI and whether it's other tools that we go to use to do it, I think that centralization of all this mass operational data has a lot of promises for what's out there. And I guess the last thing I'm going to, I'm going to end with is like related to this plus generative AI. And that we have no idea what we're talking about. If the history of technology tells us anything, we have no idea what the actual consequences of any of this stuff are going to be. Because oftentimes the most interesting ones are the completely unintended things we never saw coming down the road. I look at the smartphones that we have today, and we have a generation of people that aren't capable of having these kinds of conversations because they can't do anything but text. That's a side product of having these smartphones. And so my point is similarly with generative AI, there's going to be a whole range of unintended consequences that we haven't even thought about. We've talked about the, the tip of the iceberg of what we can foresee, but the reality is going to be completely different. Gentlemen, thanks for a great conversation. And thank you all for listening. If you'd like to get more information about this topic, you'll find related links in our show notes. And don't forget, please mark us as a favorite and you can get updates and information about future episodes. But until next time, from all of us, thank you for discussing the future of ERPs.